Welcome to Mythos, an audio journey through the folklores and mythologies of the world. Welcome to Law Britannia series of Mythos, where we explore the fascinating folklore of England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, both ancient and contemporary. Imagine a dark forest lane in the inky blackness of that liminal otherworldly space beyond the tree line. At first, you only hear your own tread and the usual sounds of nightlife, but then your attention is drawn to the unusually loud snap of twigs in the darkness of the forest, something large. Nervous, you stop, squint, and wait, hoping you'll only catch a glimpse of a deer. But in the back of your mind, you are unnerved by the fleeting glimpse of shaggy black fur that was briefly spotlighted by the full moonlight. Suddenly, from behind a tree trunk, you see a glowing pair of eyes. Unbelievably, they are as large as saucers, a sense of unnatural strain and massivity. Because they are clearly canine eyes, yet their size is a sure sign that his supernatural beast's origins are otherworldly. Indeed, Old Chuck of East Anglia is an unnerving sight, especially in the graveyards, crossroads, and dark lanes that he frequents. From being described as having eyes like railway lamps and coals of fire, the Chuck variation of the phantom dog legend is always an omen of death. His demonic origins are hinted at in a late 12th, early 13th century source, which describes him as an invisible unwhite. White being a Middle English word referring to a living, sentient being. The black dog, however, is precisely the opposite. Unalive, as it were, yet uncannily present. And many legends link sightings with death, misfortune, and massive thunderstorms. Of course, Black Shuck is only one of the many manifestations of the phantom dog legends that could be found all over the British Isles, many of which are benign. This episode, however, will look at the darker, more menacing depictions of this common folklore trend. From the tour-covered wilds of Dartmoor to the mist-shrouded Scottish Highlands, from the otherworldly black cells of London's notorious Newgate Prison to Ireland's limestone cave entrance to the underworld, in places where the veil is thin between our known world and the fey world of spirit and death. There you might hear paws padding along or a heavy, bestial breathing from canine nostrils. You might hear the rattling of chains or perhaps, more in the distance, the baying of hounds on the hunt. Welcome to the Demon Dogs episode of Mythos. Story 1. The Wished Hounds and the Wild Huntsman, Dartmoor, County Devon, England. Perhaps at twilight, at midsummer's eve or the winter solstice, at times when fey veils are mere gauze and the liminal spaces between physical and spiritual worlds is both thin and potent. Perhaps a wanderer on Dartmoor's desolate and moonlit wilds can see flashes of a hound body loping with eager strides and then disappearing behind a fairy fort hillock or a tor. Those bizarre rock formations that must serve as way markers for supernatural beings. Indeed, many a wanderer has glimpsed a hound, 
whose presence was heralded by a wailing howl, only to have the throat-catching fleeting impression that the baying has issued forth from a headless being, all raw canine throat. This is the headless yeth hound. And perhaps if this wanderer had a hagstone, those oddly shaped stones with a perfectly smooth hole, and if the wanderer peered through, they would see very clearly a canine fury of prowling hunting activity, spectral visions of flared, huffing nostrils, guttural growls, and the hooves of stallions thudding on the earth like an ominous and frenzied war drum. And in this liminal place, this boundary between our known world and fey worlds beyond, perhaps time and space work very differently. Perhaps the wanderer will see the lore of old before their very eyes, will see how frail, pointless, and wicked men fare when they encounter the demon dogs of the hunt. The cry of hounds swept through the rock valley, somehow chasing along the earth like a canine herald, a projection of their own bloody hunger. Dog shadows, all haunches and leg and snout, could be seen in the slate and wolf-mother milk clouds, running in the sky as if on land, while some of their devilish brethren swept across the squelchy, malvolent bogs, a mud giant's mouth. With inferno-red eyes and a terrible, howling bay, the dogs pursue a gentleman squire, now degraded by mud and tears and helplessness, his lungs on fire, as if the hounds had breathed their hell-breath into his face. And with humiliating, twitching rabbit fear, the man finds new strength to flee across the darkening moor, telling himself with childish tears that... If he can just reach that distant tour, a strange beacon of hope, he can find salvation from these beasts. Terrified backward glances have singed fleeting details into his hell-soaked brain. Coal-black coats, huge calf-like statures, and blazing eyes. And at his most exhausted moments, when he could only whimper to be left alone, the hounds would surround him, snarling and snapping. And this time they did the same, teasing him with an uncannily intelligent intention, almost with a hellish grin in their eyes. They circled him, their haunches all tufted hair and spectral energy. And this time, they all began to howl a wolfish dirge, a funeral hymn for their encircling procession. And mingled with their hound song was something very peculiar. The squire could have sworn that he could hear womanly weeping and screaming as well, as if the dogs had suddenly been possessed by banshees. Yes, it was so utterly clear now, a cold clarity, and a nefarious lightness of being took over the squire, a lightness of being like the out-of-body clarity of hypothermia. The hounds bayed as if in response to his revelation. They would pursue him unto the death, This the squire knew. Just as he had done, his predatory persecution of the village maidens, he remembered their terrified faces all too well. And while it was he that had grinned with hellish pleasure on all those evenings, this time the hounds would chase him, 
and he would weave and dart with animal terror, just as his prey had done. And without, the hounds sat on their haunches for a moment and growled with all the bass and tremor of the underworld. And as much as Squire Cabell wanted to simply lay down and be torn to pieces, as much as he wanted to just end it now, that self-preservation instinct sent him running across the moon-drenched moor. And when he reached that distant tour, a pain exploded in his chest, his eyes faded, and Squire Cabell was no more. He simply lay down and died from exhaustion. And now his vague and lonely spirit resides in an altar tomb on a hill just outside the south porch of the church. The threads of his spectral being, lonely and trapped, full of hunger for human contact. And sometimes he will hear childish giggling and whispers of, I dare you, just outside the small oak door of his cold gray tomb. And then the little finger of a small child will poke through the keyhole. Squire Cabell will then lean over and gnaw on the tiny finger, relishing the warm human contact, but nipping it with a self-consumed and self-pitying anger as well. Then the children will squeal and run away in terror, leaving Squire Cabell to his lonely tomb and his eternal memories of baying hounds and screaming maidens. And some years later, when the shifting darkness and illumination of seasons and equinoxes and solstices had both illuminated and obscured the moor, heralding the spectral replay of Squire Cabell's hound-racked demise, a tipsy farmer stumbles away from the Whittacombe Fair, leaving behind him that pastoral scene, the sun now descending with strange rapidity and creating that marbled effect on the quilt patchwork fields with golden sunlight in some parts and other portions plunged in the deepest shadow. And these spots of blackness and dark shrouded copses of trees that punctuate the moor make the farmer think of the stories of black hounds that prowl these parts and the unhallowed huntsman that leads them. With a dismissive laugh, the farmer shakes his head at his own foolishness, yet quickens his step nonetheless. And the darkness has now eclipsed the moor, and the farmer trips on the tufted grass and heather, almost as if little fey hands are reaching out of the ground and making sport of his ale-soaked movements. The farmer casts an ancient glance at the sky, hearing something like a horn blast, aggressive and keening, just above his head, and a howling in the wind that was damned unnatural. There is a silence for a time, and the farmer feels a heavy presence in the air, feels exposed on the open moor, and for a brief moment has a disconcerting image in his mind of shadowy beings emerging from the squelchy malvolent bogs in the even eerier parts of the moor. He shuddered with the thought that they were making his way towards them, and that he could not shake the feeling that, though fantastic and bizarre, it was entirely real and true. And suddenly, a pack of hounds bays from only a short distance, somewhere from the direction of Wisman's Wood. It was the hungry howling of the hunt full of nostril breath and guttural growl, 
and alongside the wolfish dirge and the hungry snarls is the thud of a horse's hoofs, heavy beating like an ominous and frenzied war drum. There is an ominous rhythm to the cacophony of howl and horse snore and gallop, a heralding of certain death. With a sudden plunge in his gut, the farmer realizes he cannot run. Then he must face them, the dog breath now practically at his neck. The farmer turns and faces the dread huntsman. The huntsman was com- wrapped completely in black. Only his fake, cadaverous eyes could be seen. His pitch-black howling hounds swirled about him in the air, their eyes wide with pain and knowing. The fire in their eyes creating a red glow around their unearthly master. The constant baying of the hounds could be jarring, but the ale has not left the farmer's system just yet, and it's drowned his better judgment. Puffed up with the pride of his drink-induced courage, the farmer squares his shoulders, grins, and asks, Have you had good hunting? The huntsman, cold and unimpressed, nodded. With both boldness and stupidity, the farmer cries, Then give me some of the game. Without a word, the huntsman throws a bundle to the ground and takes off across the moor with his panting, sniffing, howling spectral dogs. The farmer, thrilled with his gift and self-enamored of his own courage, runs home to tell his wife about the encounter. And with manly pride, he throws the bundle on the table. But, as the bundle is unraveled, what is revealed is the tattered, hunted body of their own dear dead child. Story 2. The Cushy and the Golden Cave, Isle of Skye, Scotland. A group of mourning villagers stand on a rocky ledge covered in golden lichen, Below them, those hexagonal stair-like stones made of gray rock and black basalt, and a clear river leading to a nearly perfectly rectangular entrance, uncannily like a doorway. The stair stones and the river are so clearly methods of entry into this cave, difficult for human clumsiness but easily accessible to the lithe fairy denizens of the underworld. This is the Cave of Gold. The King of the Pipers stands in front of this group, knowing he must enter compelled by a fairy pact to now give his life in exchange for the bagpiping skill a fey woman gave him so long ago. And from the blackness beyond the stone doorway, there was a sighing and a beckoning that tugged and pulled at the Piper's very being. There is no resisting this he knew. And mingled with this shadowy sigh from the cave's mouth was a hollow loneliness, the promise of the abysmal separation of his very being from all that he knew and loved. And before the piper begins to make his way down the steep, grassy slope to the looming rectangular door, he feels a hand clasp his shoulder. He turns to see a hollow-eyed man, face haggard from sorrow. The man pleads, please deliver my wife back to me. As we speak, she's got a ravenous little fairy imp latched to her breast, and the ugly creatures don't suck gently. Please send her back to me. I shall try, the piper says, 
hoping, but with no great confidence. The man leans in closer. Remember, those pipes of yours speak. They speak the language of the Fey folk, and I know you'll know what to play when the time comes. Those pipes will know what to say to get my wife back to me. The Fey folk take heed of what the pipes say. You hold an uncanny power in your hands. And with that, the piper only nods and takes one last loving look at the green moss blanketing the topmost portion of the cliff, as if visually caressing the startling beauty one last time. And then he makes his descent to the cave, and he can feel the cowering fear of the villagers behind him, the sighing and beckoning of the blackness within, now mingled with the bestial breathing, faint but ever so real. The piper clasps his pipes tightly to him as he stumbles into the cave, his eyes adjusting to the blackness absolute and deathly. But they do adjust much to his surprise, and while he cannot see clearly, there is an eerie glow, as thin and powerless as strangled speech, yet enough to see by, though only vaguely. He soon approaches the arched entrance of another cave so illuminated by a fey light, dismal and sickly, like a winter sun drained of light by a hungry imp. He senses movement within and, though terrified, feels compelled to move forward. The piper hides behind a large stone just to the left of the entrance and peers inside. A sharp intake of breath. Sitting on a rock, hollow-eyed and whimpering, is that man's wife, one milk-full breast exposed. The piper turns away for a moment, a creeping feeling over his body. Oh, the shriveled old man in miniature at the woman's breast. A baby, but certainly not a human baby. And well, it feeds with such aggression, the piper knows it must be painful. And taking a deep breath, the piper looked again, wondering if he should enter the cave now, when, deep in shadow at the back of the cave, was movement. There was a strange flash of something green, a sentinel with a distinctly canine lope. Yet the complete silence, the absolute lack of tread, made the piper shiver. It was unnatural. Then walking partially into the light and out again, the piper holds his breath. It is the Kushi. The terror bites into his gut. The shaggy green fur was bizarre enough, but its size, like a large calf, but faster and meaner and with a hunting prowess that could not be matched. The piper remembers the stories as the gigantic canine head gives a nostril huff. This fey being, making its lair in the cleft of rocks and hunting with absolute lightness of being on fog-shrouded moors, had the form of a dog, but the terrifying aspect of a wolf that had all the power of earth and tree and stone in its powerful haunches. The woman is trembling now, for the fey dog is sniffing at her neck. The piper could only imagine what it must have been like for her, sitting in her lonely hut, listening with rabbit-twitching fear as the unnaturally loud houndbane came closer and closer. Then, a calm clarity comes over the piper, and he steps out in full view of the Kushi, the green bitch, the underworld servant hound of the fey folk. He knows exactly what to play. The people, having spent many happy years so blessed by the fairy-blessed bagpipes, cannot leave now. 
Just outside the cave, they cower beneath the lowering sky and suddenly hear piping, wild with screaming notes, and with it, the doom bass of a bestial groan. The pipes go further and deeper, something sad in the increasing silence, as if the black depths are swallowing the sound. The people stiffen, they hear a wailing, human. The piper's voice lamenting, oh, for three hands, two for the pipes and one for a sword. And as the echoes continue like ghost screams, as the wailing pipes are interspersed with snarls and wolfish howling, a small limping figure can be seen coming from the massive rectangular blackness. The man whose wife was lost strains his eyes with hope. The figure is making its way up the grassy slope with slow and tortured movements like a rag doll possessed by a meager, anemic spirit. The man runs to the top of that hill and stops, chokes back a sob at the sight of his wife, topless, her breasts raw and drooping, her body thin and sickly. And all the while, the piping within the cave becomes wild and discordant, and the howls of the kushi become snappish and snarling. And as the man holds his wife to him, there is a sudden silence, then a low growl, and more silence. The people turn back to their village, knowing the piper will never be seen again. Story 3. The Sluashi and the Hellgate Hounds. Cave of Crokent, Connacht, Ireland. The humble cottage cowers, the vulnerable homeliness of the moss-covered thatched roof, and the family-worn wood furniture soaking in that lonely and exposed feeling that emanates from the good wife sitting by the fire. Trembling within its glow, the woman holds her suckling child close by. Outside, she knows that Sam Wayne has darkened the lowering clouds, has cast howling shadow across her known world, eclipsing the mother-swell pastoral beauty of hill, field, and forest. Beneath a sky that is swollen and bruised by the breath of the underworld, the humble cottage cowers. Sam Wayne, that day when the veil is torn, and passage is granted to sinister spiritual beings into our milk-and-butter ordinary world, the good wife hopes that her husband, late in returning home, has had the good sense to stay put in the village. Her baby whines softly and ceases his feeding, and in a wail, the likes of which the good wife has never heard from that tiny newborn mouth. And her pounding heart is what she notices first, so involved with maternal comforting and cooing, she only registers the huffing more peripherally. And finally, the baby lapses into sudden silence, and there is an uncanny watchfulness in his dark eyes. The hungry nostril breaths, and at the bottom of her door, a rooting, eager hound's nose. The rapid sniffling is now mingled with snarls, as if a starving dog has had, just had his meat snatched from him. And now ramming into the door is something that must be the size of a bull calf, whimpering now mingled with a sniffing that borders on hyperventilation. The good wife's mind is too soggy with fear to clearly identify these, these beasts, these hounds, as the kushi. But her breasts begin leaking and her little one squeals and her body is racked with the terrified knowing the hellhounds have come. They have smelled her mother's milk a mile off, 
and have come to take her away to dark places, to dark places where a fay baby waits to latch onto her breast. And the good wife's mind now goes blank with terror, for she has heard, high in a sky bruised and swollen by the breath of the underworld, she has heard those telltale calls, those human-like cries mixed with bird shrieks. And beneath those same lowering clouds, like smoke from the fires of the underworld, the good wife's husband trembles, hearing the same human-like cries mixed with bird shrieks, not only in the sky above, but rushing out of a tiny, grass-covered opening with a limestone lentil over the top, the tiniest of caves, but an entrance to another world. It comes back to him all at once, when he had been dared as a child to crawl into that cold hole, when he had shimmered backwards on hands and knees in abject terror, emerging from the golden lichen-covered passageway in abject terror, babbling incoherently about fairy whisperings and a rumbling growl. Even the taunts of his friends could not restrain him from running home in tears. And now he stands in front of that black slice of nothingness, which he know leads into a huge cathedral-like space, a space that is fey-sacred and populated by invisible folk. He knows this because the bird shriek and human call that rushed from that tiny opening was a war call. The good wife's husband had something that few had, fairy sight. While the other denizens of Canucht, those who dwelled in both hovels and estates near the cave, the cave of Kraken, while they only heard the Sluashi, he could see them. And blasting out of the cave like millions of vengeful cannons, this host is a whirling army of humanoid spirits and copper-red birds, birds of prey that echoed the rage of their masters. The good wife's husband curled into the fetal position on the dew-covered grass and covered his ears, believing and knowing that these sky-bound beings flying through the sky were the fey descendants of a conquered race releasing their oppressed rage. And mingled with the war cries of the Sluashi, he could hear the pants and howls and growls of the Kushi, indeed the Sluashi and their Hellgate hounds. And the good wife's husband stays in the fetal position, his eyes clamped shut, as he hears farm dogs nearly screaming in their barking and cows moaning. In his mind's eye, he sees this swirling mass of fey bodies and raging hounds coursing over the crops and leaving only decimation behind them. And when all the animal sounds cease, he knows that dogs and cows lay limp with glassy-eyed death having been poisoned by the Sluashi's underworld breath. The hungry, panting howls of the hellhounds moves further into the distance with a sudden, gut-wrenching realization. He leaps up and rushes towards his own cowering cottage, somehow knowing that those fey nostrils have scented milk. Story 4. The Black Dog of Newgate Prison, London, England. When the human imagination produces a black dog of gigantic stature, spiked collar, clattering chains, snakes writhing from its head in a split gut, wide open with throbbing heart visible, when it produces something that might seem laughable in the full light of day, you have to wonder at the context. 
what produced this terrifying vision of immense threat and the vulnerability of the human body. Well, first imagine a dimly lit chapel, condemned prisoners sitting through their last service, a special place reserved for them in the condemned pews, those reserved seats giving them full view of a coffin in the middle of the chapel, a reminder of their very, very imminent fate. Imagine further cruel jailers, stories of, of famine so severe that prisoners resorted to cannibalism. Newgate Prison, a place that in a lecture by Stephen Halliday is referred to as London's prototype of hell. Now, keep the monstrous froth-mouthed black dog in your mind, perhaps lurking behind the crowds as the Newgate procession occurs. Condemned prisoners are in rickety carts being hauled for execution, thronged by monstrous froth-mouthed crowds, hurling insults, throwing dead cats as was popular, and clamoring after the dead bodies once the prisoners had finally died by slow strangulation either because they believed the death sweat of the corpses cured warts, or they wanted to retrieve them for dissection and study by London surgeons. Or, as grieving friends and family, they wanted to fight off both groups. Snakes, chains, spikes, and a split-gut black dog. The black dog of Newgate's possible origins are notably discussed in a 1638 pamphlet, the discovery of a London monster in which there is a conversation between two drinkers in a pub, one of which scoffs at the existence of the dog, saying that in actual fact there is a great black stone standing in a dungeon called Limbo, where condemned prisoners await their procession to Tyburn the following day, and on this black stone they set a candle for the night, some even reportedly dashing out their brains on the stone in utter despair and desperation. Today, all that remains of Newgate Prison is a wall. Shrouded in shadow in Amen Court, this wall formed a part of the prison called Dead Man's Walk, down which condemned prisoners made their way to their execution. And while he, the black dog himself, is not seen, perhaps what is seen are the remnants of his fading spirit. For there are still reports of a repugnant black mass with no discernible shape that slithers unnaturally along the wall, accompanied by a nauseating smell, and what sounds like men dragging their feet. Then, the black mass drops into Amen Court and disappears. In a distant land far surpassing the nine kingdoms of imagination, there was a girl named Nicole Schmidt, whose grandfather took her on his knee and instilled in her a hunger for storytelling. In honor of Charles Henderson, my grandfather, I've been working on this labor of narrative love for well over a year. My intent is to bring to life that same immediacy, the same earnest involvement in the story I had all those years ago when my grandfather whipped up spontaneous tales. I also want to connect you with the stories of generations past, with the stories produced by those lost to history. And as Angela Carter so eloquently put it, with the vivid, raw narratives of the anonymous poor whose labor formed our world. Want to join in on this vision? Would you like to encourage and support me in churning out more stories? For sure, with a full-time job, I need the extra oomph of knowing you all are getting something out of it. 
You can support me on Patreon and become a part of that inner circle of storytelling enthusiasts whose creative partnership will help shape the future content of Mythos. You can also like my Mythos podcast page on Facebook and head over to mythospodcast.com to read more about my inspiration and rationale for particular stories. And if you want inspiration for your own creative efforts or just want to do some more imaginative frolicking, there's also suggestions for novels, stories, and films. Or you're just wanting more storytelling. Well, the rest of the Lore Britannia series is there for you to explore. Everything from phantom dogs prowling the moors to water witches haunting stagnant ponds. Happy listening. <laughs>